Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of Supply Chain Radio. I'm Boris Felgendreyer, and today I want to talk to you about the five books that I believe everyone in supply chain management should read this fall. Right now, you should all be back from summer vacation, and if you're like most supply chain executives that I talk to, then you're right back in the middle of things, and you're putting out fires, and you're traveling across time zones to meet suppliers in all parts of the world, and it's very tempting for you to believe that you're actually too busy to read. And you may ask yourself, you know, you barely have enough time to check your LinkedIn messages or return phone calls. How could you possibly sit down for any length of time and really read a good book? And you may actually come to the conclusion that, you know, it's simply the fate of the modern supply chain executive to be constantly stretched and busy and out of time. And that in order to break into the upper echelons of the profession, you simply have to forego a few nice-to-have luxuries such as reading. And if you believe that, then I'm sorry, but I, I believe that you're mistaken, because I've had the privilege of talking to dozens and dozens of senior-level supply chain executives over the years, and on many occasions, the conversations have turned to the industry conference they attend, and the websites they visit, or the podcasts they listen to, and the books they read. And here's what I found all successful supply chain executives to have in common. They're all exceptionally well-read. Some of them are actually voracious readers. And it's not a case where they have climbed the ranks inside their organizations and have now earned themselves more free time they can use to get more reading done. No, in fact... Many execs I talk to have had active reading habits over years and even decades in some instances. And they actually claim that reading has played a key role in their career development. But maybe I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here and everyone listening to this podcast is already a prolific reader. Well, even better. And then here are five books that you should all be reading right now if you haven't already done so. I'm only going to be talking about non-fiction books today. I mean, let's keep fiction for a, um, a future episode, maybe. And none of my book picks are traditional supply chain books. And that is by design, because I believe that supply chain management as a discipline is touched and influenced by so many different fields that it's worthwhile to venture out and look across the pond to other fields. So my picks come from the areas of biography, general business, technology, business skills. And my last pick is written by a philosopher from Oxford University. So that's, that's kind of my wild card. So if you stick with me all the way through the end, you'll learn what that pick is. Anyway, so the first book I'm holding in my hands right now is called Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future by Ashley Vance. And as the title would suggest, the book offers a portrait of Elon Musk, the um, charismatic founder of Tesla, SpaceX, and SolarCity. And Elon Musk has really catapulted himself into the limelight in the last few years by sheer virtue of the boldness and the audacity of his ideas and business ventures. And so much is written these days about disruption and disruptive ideas and disruptive technologies. But you'll be hard-pressed to find another guy on the planet right now who embodies the spirit of disruption and challenging the status quo and reinventing industries more convincingly than Elon Musk. I mean, let's just take one of Musk's business ventures as an example here, Tesla Motors. And here I have a confession to make. I've personally never been a huge fan of electric cars. I mean, I had never driven one. And whenever I heard about the poor performance and the measly range these vehicles get, 
And especially when I looked at some of the designs, I just never felt the need to sit in one, let alone drive one. But all of that changed in an instant earlier this year, when I was invited to take a test drive in what's called a Tesla Model S P85D, you know, the most high-end version of the Tesla vehicles. And for full disclosure, I'm a big fan of German-engineered cars, preferably the ones with powerful combustion engines. So my bias going into this was frankly a mixture of naivete and some arrogance maybe blended into it. <laughs> that sort of arrogance was on full display when I took a first inspection of the Tesla engine and I made the condescending remark that the engine looks like the engine of my washing machine. Which is true, but then I learned that the car I was about to drive actually had 700 horsepower. So needless to say that that made me look a little stupid and it also was the first indication that something was about to really violate my expectations in a major way there. And sure enough, the test drive turned out to be one of the most exciting and spectacular driving experiences I've ever had. And in the process, it completely upended and changed my entire worldview on the future of cars. Because up until that point, I really didn't think it would be possible for a US-based car startup company to completely change the game of the industry within just a matter of years. Because it's kind of considered conventional wisdom that in order to be successful in the car business, you have to build up and nurture an ecosystem of partners and suppliers over decades. And Tesla really came out of nowhere. But the supply chain of Tesla looks a lot different than the supply chain of a traditional car company. For one, the car has a lot fewer moving parts. And the engine, for example, is not the crucial part. It's the batteries. And Tesla manufactures the batteries in-house. And that's a very unconventional thing to do. You know, the global automotive industry has moved to an outsourced manufacturing model for decades now. And as a consequence, many companies have suffered from a lack of control and visibility of their extended supply chain. Which in turn explains why so many automotive manufacturers and suppliers have gotten so interested in cloud-based technology because they want to gain control back and they want to have real-time visibility into a wider network of partners. And if you don't have that visibility and control, then it's going to be really difficult to compete with a new kid on the block that's small, agile and aggressive and does things in such unconventional ways as Tesla does it. And just to throw one more unconventional thing into the mix here that Tesla has done that has major implications for its supply chain is that the company has turned the traditional dealership network model on its head by selling directly to consumers. And in order to understand why Tesla does things in such an unconventional way, you kind of have to understand what's going on in the head of Elon Musk. Because the automotive industry is not the only industry that Elon has taken on. He's also disrupting renewable energies and space travel. He's just getting started, and who knows what industry is next. This book is a nice and easy, entertaining read, and it's a fascinating look at a fascinating character. And once you're done reading, I can guarantee you that you're ready to start a new business and ready to change the world, and those are not bad feelings to have. Book number two is called Talk Like TED, T-E-D, and TED here, of course, stands for the global TED Talks under the slogan Ideas Worth Spreading. And what's great about those TED Talks, in my view, is that the speakers are each given a maximum of only 18 minutes to present their ideas in the most innovative and engaging ways they can. So, for example, one very memorable moment occurred a few years ago when Bill Gates gave a talk on the topic of the fight against malaria and he famously opened up a jar of mosquitoes on stage and released the swarm of mosquitoes onto the audience. 
But it doesn't require a stunt like that to deliver an effective TED Talk. But what does it take? It turns out that the most successful TED Talks have a handful of things in common. And it's exactly those things that this book, Talk Like TED, is trying to put a finger on. The author Carmine Gallo has teased out and summarized the findings of his analysis of over 500 of the most successful talks. And of course, there's no shortage of books out there on public speaking. But presenting an idea or a vision in a short and compelling way, I think, is a super skill. And it's a super skill that surprisingly few people really master. I mean, I personally attended dozens and dozens of supply chain conferences over the years. And the vast majority of presentations do not follow the guidelines that Gallo presents as separating the best talks from the rest. But a few of them actually do. And it's exactly those presentations that I still remember today. Mick Jones, for example, head of supply chain for Lenovo, whom I recently interviewed for this very podcast, is a great TED-esque-like speaker. Or Tom Franz from Caterpillar. He has a great video on the internet where he gives this very personal account of how he and a team of colleagues were sitting in a hotel bar in Singapore en route to Japan when they saw on TV above the bar that an earthquake and tsunami had just hit Japan. And Caterpillar, by the way, has cloud-enabled end-to-end supply chain visibility. So Tom goes on to explain how they logged onto their computers and were able to get a very clear picture of their inventory situation in and around Japan in minutes. Something that took other companies weeks and months to do. And I think it was this TED-style personal anecdote that really drove his message home and made it stick for me. But communicating persuasively about your organization's supply chain capabilities doesn't only benefit you as an individual, it also benefits your organization. And for further reading on the topic, I recommend a blog post by my colleague Greg Kiefer, who recently wrote about the three reasons you need a good supply chain marketing strategy. If you Google that term, it'll come right up. And he's basically making a case why positive, proactive communication about your supply chain can be vital for an organization. And the reason why I would recommend Talk Like Ted over the scores of other useful books about public speaking is because I think, and I'm sort of echoing what I hear from other regular attendees of supply chain conferences here, we want to see more Ted-like pizzazz sprinkled into some of these presentations at supply chain conferences. And to be clear, this is not about favoring style over content. It's really about making valuable content come to life in the most memorable way for the audience. And on that front, Talk Like Ted is super helpful. And just so very clear on one other point as well, reading this book, or any other book for that matter, is not going to make you a better speaker per se. Only deliberate practice will do that. But deliberate practice really depends on you knowing what the key ingredients are that you need to optimize for during that practice. And I think Talk Like Ted does a great job of highlighting those key ingredients. Book number three may be familiar to many of you. It's The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon by Brad Stone. I recommend this book because I believe that you can't really be in supply chain management without knowing what Amazon is up to these days. Self-picking robots, drones, next-day delivery, same-day delivery, or even anticipatory delivery, where Amazon now claims to have so much confidence in knowing what you're about to order on its site that they have plans to send out the merchandise to you before you have actually placed the order. They call it anticipatory shipping. You know, it's those crazy ideas that seem to be so fundamentally at odds 
with just about everything you would have learned about supply chain management in business school or even in the real world. And Amazon has really mastered the art of continuously upping the game for both online and bricks and mortar retailers. And Amazon has always been sort of a polarizing company. And you either hate them or you love them. There's really little in between. And it's impossible not to have an opinion on the company. If you happen to fall into the camp of the critics, you just recently received a whole bunch of new ammunition in the form of an article that appeared in the New York Times. Here's the headline. Inside Amazon, wrestling big ideas in a bruising workplace was the headline. And that article stirred a lot of controversy because it took a very critical look at the kind of working atmosphere inside of Amazon. And I don't want to comment on that here, but I think it's fair to say that Amazon is one of the most driven, ambitious, and aggressive companies out there. And the company has pursued a long-term vision since the very beginning to become the everything store that puts the customer at the center of everything. And the company wants to revolutionize the way things get sold and bought on the internet and beyond. And similar to how Tesla is the brainchild and the outcome of the mind of Elon Musk, Amazon is really the brainchild and the outcome of the mind of Jeff Bezos. And this book, The Everything Store, offers a fantastic portrait of the mind of Jeff Bezos, his big vision, and the history of the company and where it's headed. And even if you're a staunch critic, you have to give the company credit and admire it for its long view approach to things. I mean, this is a company that doesn't give a damn about short-term analyst quarterly earnings on Wall Street. And it's all about taking the money and the cash that the company makes and investing every single penny back into the business to drive a relentless pursuit of its vision. You could look at the um, financial results of the company over the last 20 years, and it's basically zero profits year after year after year after year. And that's not because Amazon couldn't run a profitable business. No, it's because Amazon decides deliberately to reinvest every single penny back into building out this vision. And a lot of the money is going into logistics supply chain and warehouses and being close to where the consumer is so they can offer next day and same day delivery to more and more people, even in remote places. And I think what they're going to end up doing is they're going to take on more and more of the last mile delivery and take that away from, you know, the DHLs and the FedExs and the UPSs of the world and may become a last mile delivery company in the process that also offers that service to other companies. And this is very similar to what they've quietly done over the last few years, which is not as apparent and well known to people outside of the tech circle, is that Amazon has become the leading provider of cloud computing services through their Amazon Web Services. So basically what happened there is that Amazon figured out very early on that if they really wanted to become the everything store that has the fastest execution, and the shortest delivery times, and the best insights into what the customers actually want, then they couldn't really rely on traditional IT infrastructure and off-the-shelf license and install software. So they went pedal to the metal into cloud technology. And that turned out to be so successful that they started to rent out their cloud computing capabilities and resources and storage to other companies. And today, Amazon Web Services, AWS, power some of the most successful startup companies that need to scale quickly. So think Netflix, Pinterest, Airbnb, all running in Amazon's cloud. So the company has come such a long way from being a pure online seller of books. And that was the plan all along. 
So if you're in supply chain management and you have not read this book, I urge you to pick it up today and read it. And maybe this one you don't want to order on Amazon, but you want to actually go to your local independent bookstore if there is actually one left in your neighborhood. Book number four is called The Second Machine Age by Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee. I think I bought and first read that book sometime in early 2014, and I've since revisited it numerous times. Because I see so much change going on in the areas of business, in technology, in software, in cloud, in manufacturing, in retail, in data, in analytics, that I'm struggling to make sense of it all. And somehow this book, The Second Machine Age, sits at the intersection of all of those things. And to me, it provides a sort of um, cohesive, coherent worldview and explanation of what's going on here. And the book makes the case that we have entered an era where everything around us gets technology and information enabled. And everything that gets technology and information enabled then jumps onto the growth curve of Moore's Law. And Moore's Law is Silicon Valley speak for everything gets faster, faster and cheaper, faster. And it's a term that comes from the world of semiconductors, but that phenomenon of things getting faster and cheaper at an accelerating rate applies to just about any field of modern technology, whether it be computing power or cloud or mobile technology or storage or the Internet of Things or 3D printing or biotechnology or robotics, big data analytics or artificial intelligence. All of those technologies are exponential technologies. That means they change at an accelerating pace. And of course, every organization and every industry will be affected by this change. But I happen to believe that this change is not limited to what's going on inside an organization. I actually think that the the change will have a much bigger impact on what's going on between companies, because that represents a much bigger value area. Just take smart manufacturing or industry 4.0 as an example here. It's not hard to see how embedding chips and sensors into machines on the shop floor will make the manufacturing process more data-driven and smarter. But I think the real potential and the real challenge lies in turning that data and smartness into actionable intelligence that can be shared in real time across the entire value chain. And that's where supply chain management comes into the picture. The supply chain has suddenly become a new frontier for all of those new technologies. And this book, The Second Machine Age, is a great primer for this whole concept. And I think it's a must-read for everyone in supply chain management. Okay, the last book, book number five, The Wild Card. It's called Superintelligence, Paths, Dangers, Strategies, by Professor Nick Bostrom from Oxford University. It's about artificial intelligence. And I have to admit that until recently, I hadn't really paid much attention to the topic of artificial intelligence or AI. I'm not a real sci-fi geek. I don't read science fiction. But the topic really started to catch my attention in a major way a few months ago when Elon Musk, there he is again, (laughs) and some other world-class thought leaders like the physicist Stephen Hawking, called AI humankind's biggest existential risk, a risk that could spell the end of the human race. And I'm paraphrasing here. So when I read that, I became curious and started to investigate the basis for those you know, pretty dramatic predictions. And on this one, my bias was that old-school AI hasn't really panned out. Or I shouldn't say it hasn't panned out, but I didn't see a reason how old-school AI could pose an existential risk. And of course, I was aware that since the 1980s, 
The world's best chess player is a computer developed by IBM, but playing chess is really the only thing that that computer, Deep Blue, can do. It has, for example, no idea how to play backgammon or tic-tac-toe or any other game. So it's a quintessential one-trick pony. Its intelligence is super narrow, and that intelligence doesn't transfer to any other games, let alone other fields. And I figured that for a machine to become as smart or even smarter than a human, we would need to build a machine that can learn how to learn. And it would need to learn in a way that it can apply whatever it has learned to solve new problems in other fields. So self-learning and self-improvement would need to be built right into the system. So it's no longer limited to what you program it to do. Similar to how a human can learn how to read and then apply that skill to acquire other skills. And it turns out that the field of artificial intelligence has experienced a real renaissance of late and has made so much progress with self-learning algorithms in the last few years that most experts now believe that a super-intelligent machine is within reach in the next few decades and certainly within this century. But here's the tricky thing. On one hand, the prospect of having a super-intelligent machine at our disposal is awesome. Right? I mean, how fantastic would it be to just sit back and have that thing find a cure for cancer for us or prevent global warming? But having a super intelligent machine is going to introduce a whole new set of threats and dangers into the equation here. I mean, one very obvious one is what if some type of rogue character decides to turn the super intelligent machine into the ultimate tool of war? You know, cyber and terrestrial. Another one is the whole question around self improvement and this thing being able to create better and better version of itself. Which leads to probably the biggest philosophical question in all of this, which is called the control problem. How do you control the thing? How do you control something that is much smarter than any human being on the planet? How do you make sure it doesn't decide that it's better to get rid of us? Uh, and that's kind of the, the existential risk that Musk and Hawkins and Bill Gates and others have talked about. And by the way, the trigger for this very high-profile debate among these guys was this book. Nick Bostrom is the world's leading authority on the topic, at least from a philosophical standpoint. And the book is really like a dense, deep dive into every possible aspect of this debate. And at this point, you may be wondering what all of this has to do with supply chain management. And the answer I would give is everything and nothing. And let's start with nothing. It is highly unlikely that you're going to be faced with having to solve the control problem of a super intelligent machine in your line of business anytime soon or ever. But I predict that the areas of supply chain management and logistics will become some early test fields for some of the technologies that will eventually lead to the kind of artificial intelligence we're talking about here. We already see some of this happening in the areas of self-driving trucks autonomous vehicles, self-picking robots. The field has also been a very early adopter of some very sophisticated algorithms, particularly in the area of planning and optimization. And yes, many of those sophisticated planning and optimization engines may not have lived up to their expectations, but for the longest time, those engines were really starved of the right data. And the old adage, garbage in, garbage out, proved to be remarkably resilient. But in the last few years, we really have seen a major breakthrough on that front. Because finally, the right technology is in place to break open the pesky silos that have always existed along global supply chains. 
So now we can open up the spigots and feed our engines with the entire set of data from the extended supply chain in real time. And even though I'm not aware of any self-learning algorithms that are currently being applied to the firehose of supply chain data that's available to us now, I don't think this is too far off in the future. You know, right now, the biggest progress is being made by the likes of Google and Facebook and Yahoo, the companies who have access to huge amounts of data, like images and voice and video from the internet, and they're feeding that to self-learning algorithms to create better and better speech and image recognition engines. And some of them are already performing better than humans on these tasks. And I think the area of global trade and commerce and supply chain is next. Because the potential payoff is just too large, so everyone is just pedal to the metal. But having said all of that, we're still such a long way from anything that resembles human intelligence. And the best indication for that is the recent DARPA robotics challenge. So here we had 25 teams from all around the world with the best roboticists from the leading universities in the field. And they showed up at this competition with the best human-like robots that they can build. And they had millions of dollars at the disposal. And then they built these robots and they sent them into this competition. And it turns out that every single one of the robots in the competition had trouble opening doors. They really struggled to turn a doorknob. So there we are. The future of superintelligence is bright or dangerous, however you want to look at it. But in any case, I believe that supply chain management is going to be a key battleground and a first testing field for all of this. And I think it's important to have a long view on things. That's why I find Nick Bostrom's superintelligence so helpful. Okay, that completes my review and recommendations of the five books that I believe everyone in supply chain management should read this fall. And if you made it this far, this is already a good sign. In any case, I would love to hear from you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please let me know. And if you think I was wildly off the mark and I wasted your time, I would love to hear that too, because I'm always open for any constructive criticism. My name is Boris Felgendrea, that's B-O-R-I-S-F-E-L-G-E-N-D-R-E-H-E-R. You can find me on the internets. Until then, happy reading. Happy reading.